This message comes from NPR sponsor, The Pitchfork Review. It's the podcast for the music obsessed, the music curious, and everyone in between. Listen to The Pitchfork Review and hear music differently. Find new episodes every Friday at midnight. No matter what you've got planned, you need a song of the summer. This week on NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, we are rounding up experts from NPR Music. We will play a ton of songs to lift your spirits, and you might even find your next favorite artist. That's NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. Listen and subscribe now. For NPR Music, I'm Bob Boylan. I'm here with Robin Hilton. So for the past year, NPR has been celebrating anthems. All sorts of anthems, right? Yeah, and all the different... This isn't like the Star-Spangled Banner anthem, so although that, that's, that's yeah. one of them. These are like songs that celebrate the American spirit or or say something about what it means to be this American. This land is your land. Right, or Dylan's The Times Are Changing. Uh, all the way to like Public Enemies Fight the Power or Leonard Skinner's Sweet Home Alabama. These are songs that... Action through right. them. Uniting songs. Yeah. So going into the 4th of July weekend, we thought we'd take a look at this year in anthems. Tom Cole here at the Arts Desk in Washington, D.C. at NPR, and Elizabeth Blair, also on the Arts Desk, who's put this series together. They're going to host a little show for us. And they're going to share some of the stories that they've covered over the past year and some of their favorite pieces. You can see all the songs and listen to all the reported pieces on our website. Just go to npr.org and search for American Anthem, and you'll, you'll see the whole series. But these are some of their favorite ones. Happy Fourth, everybody. We've thought a lot about anthems over the past year as we've worked on this series for NPR, and it made us realize we're living in a time when we're asking a lot of questions about what it means to be an American. And music is a powerful tool that helps us express those ideas and feelings. One of my favorite American anthems is Woody Guthrie's This Land is Your Land. What fascinated me most about this story was not just why Guthrie wrote it, but also about his relationship to the land. This land is your land. When Woody Guthrie sang this land, his daughter, Nora, says he wasn't just singing about deserts and wheat fields. The whole idea of a land is your spot on earth, you know, a spot where you can claim safety, sanity. Nora Guthrie says, in a way, the land was Woody's home, and he did not like to keep still, even when he was telling his story to folklorist Alan Lomax. And Alan would say, well, come sit down and have something to eat, and Woody would stand up. He'd say, no, I don't want to get too comfortable. Don't get too comfortable, because you never know who's going to take your home away. As I went a-walking that ribbon of highway, and I saw above me that endless skyway. Guthrie wanted to sing the truth. In one verse that rarely gets performed, he takes a dig at wealthy landowners. There was a big high wall there that tried to stop me. The sign was painted, said private property. But on the back side, it didn't say nothing. This land was made for you and me. Now, the left-leaning politics of this land is your land are most likely lost on the millions of kids who've been learning the song more than 75 years after it was written. This land was made for you and me. 
And yet, politics is partly how the song spread. Woody Guthrie wasn't a communist, but he sympathized with the cause. He was pro-union and anti-war. He also, as he put it, cussed out high rents and punk politicians. The late Pete Seeger, who became an icon of folk music, often appeared with Guthrie. He told NPR they were blacklisted as early as the 1940s. We did one program on CBS radio, and a newspaper reporter out said, Red minstrels try to get on the networks. And that was the last job we got. Nora Guthrie says for a time, the only work Seeger could get was singing for young people. Basically, every kid that went to summer camps learned this land is your land. And that's how the song really became popularized, not by my father, but by people like Pete Seeger, who was blacklisted. This land is your Land is Your Land has been recorded hundreds of times, but most people don't learn it from a recording. Seeger said the song endures simply because people love to sing it. That song was never played on the radio. It was never played on TV. It was a nothing of a song as far as the commercial world was concerned, but practically everybody in America knew this song. We've always gotten requests from so many thousands of people over the years saying, This should be the national anthem because it's filled with beauty and love of the country. And the family has always felt that that's a very dangerous place to go, that the song belongs to the citizens, not the government. Sometimes it takes an outsider to point out what's great about a culture. That is exactly what Czech composer Antonin Dvorak was when he came to the U.S. at the end of the 19th century an immigrant thrown into a new world and new sounds. At the time, American concert music sounded a lot like Brahms or Beethoven. Dvorak heard something different in an unexpected place. NPR's Tom Heisinger reports that Dvorak said as much to the New York Herald right before he debuted his New World Symphony. The future of this country must be founded upon what are called the Negro melodies. This must be the real foundation of any serious and original school of composition to be developed in the United States. The Negro Melodies. That's a reading of Dvorak telling white Americans the future of their music resides in the people they subjugated and killed. It was radical, and I think that he got harshly criticized and really rejected. Joanne Folletta is the music director of the Buffalo Philharmonic. She's conducted Dvorak's New World Symphony many times. Dvorak was surprised, in a way, to find that the roots of American music were not European. They were African-American. Including spirituals. Dvorak may have even heard the Fisk Jubilee singers who were popular at the time, but Joe Horowitz, author of the book Classical Music in America, says Dvorak's real connection to African-American spirituals was a young black man named Harry Burley. He'd applied to be a student at Dvorak's National Conservatory. Dvorak chose a black person to be his assistant. How likely is that? Remember, this is America in the 1890s. So put yourself in Dvorak's head. He's probably thinking at least two things. I want to help this young black man, and this young black man is going to help me. Harry Burley was a self-taught baritone. But there's the Lord 
Lee sang spirituals to Dvorak, like Go Down Moses, which the composer said had a melody to rival Beethoven. Horowitz says Burley also sang Swing Low, Sweet Chariot to Dvorak. And Burley claimed that Dvorak was actually quoting Swing Low. In the opening movement of the New World Symphony, says Horowitz, who's at the piano to demonstrate. First, the melody of Swing Low. Now, listen to how Dvorak's melody flows out of that. Dvorak, the outsider immigrant, could see something American composers were blind to. There was a rich tradition to draw on right in front of their noses, and Dvorak showed them how to do it. He wove American roots music into his vast symphonic canvas, and inspired by black spirituals, he came up with a melody that would become a spiritual on its own, the Largo, the symphony's second movement. My family all thought it was a spiritual. Bass baritone Kevin Days first heard Going Home as a kid when he didn't realize the music was by Dvorak. We had Going Home in our hymnals that I grew up singing, and so I was familiar with the melody, but there was just this instant sense of I could identify with this music. So Days recorded it. It has that sense of longing, and so much of the African-American spiritual tradition comes with this idea that heaven or home is a, a beautiful place to go to. Tom Heisinger, NPR News. us define what it means to be an American. Like the song America the Beautiful, sung here by Ray Charles in 1972. NPR's Eric Westervelt traveled to Pikes Peak to see firsthand how the place inspired an American classic. One weekend in July of 1893, a feminist poet and Wellesley College English professor, Catherine Lee Bates, scaled Pikes Peak just outside Colorado Springs, Colorado. She was teaching a summer session on Chaucer and recovering from a suicidal depression earlier that spring. A brand new railway up the 14,000 plus foot mountain was broken, so Bates had to make it up the rocky path by a horse-drawn wagon and then by mule. 
We're going by SUV. Even today, the road is intimidating, with narrow switchbacks and astonishingly few guardrails. With me is my guide, historian Leah Davis Witherow, curator of the Colorado Springs Pioneers Museum. That's part of the thrill of getting to the top of Pikes Peak is that you've braved your way up. On top of the windswept peak to the east, you can see almost all the way to Kansas. And to the north, the Rocky Mountains stretch into the distance. Catherine Lee Bates actually talked about and described in her journals that the summit of Pikes Peak was the gateway to heaven. The sun is hitting these red rocks and these alpine evergreens, dusted with snow. You can see the clouds hovering. In the late afternoon, as the sun is shining um, and the shadows are coming over the mountains, the mountain looks purple. It kind of radiates this purple glow, and it is beautiful. Bates later wrote that the view overwhelmed her. That's a soloist with the choir of Washington National Cathedral. Bates's poem, America, was first published on the 4th of July in 1895, two years after her trip up Pikes Peak. She revised it in 1904, adding the lines, and crown thy good with brotherhood from sea to shining sea. It was later set to Samuel Ward's tune, Materna, and the modern America the Beautiful was born. It's been what you might call the national hymn ever since. Eric Westervelt, NPR News. America! You're listening to American Anthem. In our series, we describe anthems as music that challenges, unites, and celebrates. And I think all of those things are true. They are. And musicologist Shauna Redmond gave us another definition. She said anthems demand something of their listeners. And I love that because whether it's sort of a quiet hymn or a rousing song you sing at a sports event, you're asking people to sing it together and to think about what it is they're singing, to think about the lyrics. That's a lot of participation. And when people decline to participate, like taking the knee during the national anthem, that's a very powerful statement, too. NPR's Tom Goldman reports on the song's history, one that's both powerful and controversial. Oh, Saint, can you see? Pausing for patriotism before the game begins, that's been a tradition forever, it seems. Mark Clegg is one of the few who can identify when forever began. May 15, 1862, in Brooklyn, New York. University of Michigan musicology professor Mark Clegg has spent a lot of his adult life learning everything he can about the Star-Spangled Banner. It was born in 1814 when Francis Scott Key put words to a well-known melody. Forty-eight years later, on that May day in Brooklyn, Clegg says the song first met up with sports at the dedication of a new baseball field. He broke in as a hurler in 1914. In the 1918 World Series, Babe Ruth's Boston Red Sox were playing the Cubs in Chicago. The crowd was flat, the Cubs weren't playing well, the weather was crummy, and at a much more significant level, World War I still raged. During the seventh inning stretch, the band, says Clegg, struck up the anthem. And one of the players on the field who's 
in the Navy sort of snaps to attention and the crowd responds and, you know, it, it gets written up in the newspaper as this amazing moment that sort of brings the stadium back to life. By the time this anthem played at the 1939 World Series, the song was a regular occurrence, not just at baseball, but hockey and football games as well. It became the country's official anthem in 1931 and a natural fit at sporting events with its celebration of heroism and the musical athleticism needed to belt out the song's highs and lows. As the song spread post-World War II, it became something people expected and insisted upon, with the exception of pacifists who hated the warlike lyrics. Athletic arenas became stages for memorable renditions, from Whitney Houston at the 1991 Super Bowl to Marvin Gaye at the 1983 NBA All-Star Game. This to be, indeed, the land of the free and the home of the brave, we would have to have arrived at that state of perfection that does not at this point exist. Of course, the anthem has been a battleground for dissent, too. And Dr. Harry Edwards has been on those front lines for 50 years as an athlete, sociology professor, and active participant in the civil rights movement. His experience spans the 1968 protests during the anthem by Olympic medal winners John Carlos and Tommy Smith to his current roles as a sports consultant to the NFL and advisor to Colin Kaepernick, who started the NFL player demonstrations during the anthem in 2016. The anthem, Edwards says, always has been a powerful platform for protest. The national anthem is about America. It is symbolic of that aspiration for e pluribus unum, one out of the many. So the anthem becomes a forum uh, to demonstrate against the contradictions to those professed aspirations. Tom Goldman, NPR News. Now the story of what may be this country's most divisive song. Dixie was the rallying cry of the Confederacy during the Civil War. NPR's Bilal Qureshi crisscrossed the Mason-Dixon line to explore how Dixie became and endures as an anthem. When my Pakistani immigrant parents chose Richmond, Virginia as our American hometown, they didn't realize the city had a pre-existing condition. Nostalgia for the lost cause of the Confederacy. Growing up, the ghosts of the Old South were everywhere. 
rebel flags waving from pickup trucks, and Confederate monuments along the city's main avenue. For four years, Richmond was the capital of the Confederate States of America, and if that country had an anthem, it was Dixie. But the song was born in the North, says historian Ed Ayers, who lives in Richmond. Dixie actually was only created in 1859 as a minstrel show in Ohio, which people tend to forget that minstrelsy was the most popular art form in the United States. White men in blackface, very often from the North, imagining happy enslaved people. I wish I was in the land of cotton, old times there I'm not forgotten. Look away, look away, look away, Dixieland. And parroting them at the same time that they are pretending to be them. So it's a very weird thing for people to have adopted as a national anthem of the Confederacy. The tune is tremendously catchy. Whenever I hear it, I find myself humming it all day. It's really a wonderful song if you ignore all the racial and political overtones. Journalist Tony Horwitz is the author of Confederates in the Attic, a book in which he traced the enduring legacy of the lost cause. Horwitz says while Dixie can work inside the parameters of a reenactment, in real America, the song is tangled up with the history of racism and segregation. Dixie was part of the score of Birth of a Nation, the movie that helped revive the Ku Klux Klan. It was embraced by the segregationist Dixiecrats in the 1940s, and in the 1950s, it was sung by white women protesting the integration of schools. And by the 1970s, it was on primetime, says historian Ed Ayers. Think of Dukes of Hazard; their horn plays the first notes of Dixie. But Dixie's biggest platform was the Southern Football Stadium, and nowhere more prominently than the University of Mississippi and its Pride of the South marching band. My name is Chris Presley, and I was the drum major for the Pride of the South marching band at Ole Miss. My first two years, I was playing Dixie with the marching band, and then my last two years, I was conducting the song. Chris Presley is African-American, and he says despite the song's divisive history, during games, Dixie could become a unifying anthem. Even though the song divided many people, I still saw everyone holding up their pom-poms, especially when we were winning during the song of Dixie. The band continued playing Dixie until two years ago, when the school finally stopped using it. I have always loved the song Dixie. That's jazz singer Renee Marie. As a black person, I knew that it was like, no, you cannot, you cannot sing this song because it's Dixie, Renee. But I thought, this is song is just about somebody who wishes they were back in their hometown in the South. I can identify with that. And so she sang it for the first time in Richmond. In Dixieland, I'll take my stand to And I in Dixie. Marie says people were shocked, as if she'd used the most offensive racial slur. Oh, they sat back, you know, and folded their arms and crossed their legs like, what is this? Because honestly, Bilal, there are, there are certain emblems of this society that are just taboo. You know, the Confederate flag is anathema to African Americans, and for good reason. And the song Dixie is like the, tri- the trifecta, you know. But in her arrangement, Renee Marie merges Dixie with a song that Billie Holiday made famous about lynching. Southern trees 
That's the juxtaposition, isn't it? And both songs are representative of what it's like living in the South. But that old South is fading. And I asked Renee Marie if it would be better if one of its symbols, Dixie, was best forgotten. No, do not try to erase it. I would say look at it. Find out what's going on with your country. And stop thinking that it's post-anything. It's not post-anything. It's all still right here in your face. I mean, <laughs> to use the vernacular. But yes, it's right here. Even if Dixie was expunged, it will always be an anthem in some American hearts. Confined but never forgotten. Alive and electric as only anthems can be. Bilal Qureshi, NPR News. I wish I was in the land of cotton. Old times there are not forgotten. Look away, look away, look away, Dixieland. Now the story of a song that's been called the Hippie National Anthem and played throughout 1967 during the Summer of Love. The song is Get Together, and the most popular version is by the Youngbloods. Love is but a song we sing Fears we will die The Vietnam War was raging, and the band's lead singer, Jesse Colin Young, remembers what it felt like. Well, back then we were all subject to the draft. That made everything more life and death. And hope is what comes out of that song. The Youngbloods came together in New York in 1965 and rehearsed in Greenwich Village's Café Agogo when there wasn't a show. That's where Young first heard Get Together. It was a Sunday afternoon and I was walking through the village and I thought, oh, the Go-Go's going to be dark and I'll call the band, we can rehearse. And I walked down the stairs and it turned out to be an open mic. And I thought I would turn around and go home. But Buzzy Linhart was on stage singing Get Together. That song just stopped me in my tracks. It was the lyrics that grabbed him. Love is but a song we sing. Fear's the way we die. <laughs> wow. The human condition in two lines. The lyrics grabbed singer Liz Wright, too, who recorded it in 2004 for her album Dreaming Wide Awake. You hold the key to love and fear All in your trembling hand Just one key unlocks them both And it's there at your command This is my favorite verse. I really love the imagery, it's fantastic, you know. In our uncertainty, we are still choosing to learn by love or to learn by fear as we go. And it's, I just love how this verse puts it back in our court as individuals. The song was written in the early 60s by Chester Powers, who performed under the name Dino Valenti. Love is but the song we sing And fear is the way we die 
Valenti was the son of carnival performers, and he made a name for himself in the folk clubs of Greenwich Village. He'd already left for the West Coast when the Young Bloods formed, but Jesse Colin Young met him years later. I met him at a motorcycle shop in Marin County. We were both living in the Bay Area, and I was surprised. Dino was kind of a tough guy. <laughs> and I thought to myself, wow, the angels just took a hold of you one day and put this song in your head, and you brought it to us. One of the definitions of the word anthem is psalm or hymn. An early review of the song asked why it's not sung in church. Singer Liz Wright thinks it should be. There was just all this imagery, some of it even edging on some biblical imagery. I just felt like this is one of those songs that helped me speak better, speak everything else better. And when I first heard it, I knew that it would make me better as a messenger. And Jesse Colin Young says it still carries a message for our times. Every night I sing it, it's my favorite part of the show because the people sing. I played it in uh, Central Park this past summer on the first year anniversary of Charlottesville. Those people sang it stronger than I've ever heard it sung. And some people were pumping their fists and I, I realized they were saying, we choose love. Not every song can do all of that. Come on, people now, smile on your brother, everybody get together, try and love one another right now. Come on, people now, smile on your brother, everybody get together, try and love one another right now. I'm Elizabeth Blair. And I'm Tom Cole. You're listening to American Anthem from NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Tito's Handmade Vodka. Born and bred in Austin, Texas, the live music capital of the world. Music's just kind of part of our DNA, says Tito Beverage, founder and master distiller of Tito's Handmade Vodka. For recipes, videos, and more, visit them at titosvodka.com. 80 proof Tito's Handmade Vodka. Fifth Generation Incorporated, distilled and bottled in Austin, Texas, crafted to be savored responsibly. Support also comes from Showtime and the four-part documentary series Shangri-La. Academy Award-winning director Morgan Neville and Grammy-winning music producer Rick Rubin give you an unprecedented look at the creative process and how it leads to artistic greatness. Go inside Shangri-La, Rubin's studio where some of the most iconic albums of our time were produced, and hear from some of today's most talented musicians. Shangri-La starts streaming July 12th, only on Showtime. Today, we're celebrating the songs that inspire, challenge, and unite us. And one of these songs still speaks to our changing times. Bob Dylan wrote it in 1963 when the civil rights movement was underway and demonstrations against the Vietnam War were gearing up. It would become the anthem of his generation. Here's NPR's Lynn Neary. When Bob Dylan first hit the music scene, singer Joan Baez was the reigning queen of folk. She fell in love with both the man and his music. But even now, Baez doesn't pretend to know what went on in Dylan's head when he wrote The Times They Are A-Changin'. It may have become an anthem, she says, but she doubts that's what he set out to create. It's impossible to write an anthem. I would never attempt it. 
I mean, I think there are probably a lot of well-meaning musicians who have written a lot of songs, but to get people to really relate to it and have a sort of universality of time and place, that's difficult, and that's what this song does. Oh, the times, they are changing Dylan's music was like nothing you'd ever heard before. It wasn't just that twangy nasal voice. It was those lyrics. The line, it is drawn, the curse, it is cast. This slow one now will later be fast As the present now will later be past As the 60s faded into the 70s, the urgency of the song faded with it. Bob Dylan went on to other things, and the generation he first sang for grew up, became mothers and fathers themselves. By the time a new generation came along, the times had already changed. Matt Malian was born in 1971. He was in his 20s before he discovered Bob Dylan. There was a budget tape, The Free Will and Bob Dylan, and I bought it, a cassette tape, if you can remember that technology. Malian thinks the times they are changing is more relevant now than ever. He teaches writing to teenagers in Seattle, many from immigrant families. When he played this song for his students, he thought they would like the poetry of the lyrics. Instead, they were caught up in the meaning of the words. The song spoke to them. They see these words as living. It's not something anchored to the 60s. It's something live and now. And I think that ties to the timelessness of the piece. When Jennifer Hudson sang the times they are changing on the mall last spring, she was backed up by a choir of young people. All right, let's run it from the top. Ranging in age from 13 to 30, they meet regularly to rehearse in Columbia, Maryland. People, wherever you grow. Choir director Jonathan Ball says he was surprised when the choir was asked to sing the times they are changing at the march. He didn't know the song, and neither did most of the members of the choir. Ball says as they started to rehearse, the lyrics took on more meaning for all of them. He began imagining what it would be like to sing those words. Come senators, congressmen, please heed the call on the National Mall. In my mind, when I was arranging the part, I was like, I hope the president hears this. I hope the senators, the congressmen are actually listening. And like a movie almost, like, you know, like they hear the music and they just like write a new law. Come senators and congressmen, please heed the call. Don't you stand in the doorway. Don't you block up the hall. Erica Edmond is the lead singer. She says the full impact of the song really hit when the choir sang it during the march. Because we were there looking at all of these people, I would look into the crowd seeing people crying. You know, you had people that are begging, screaming for change. So it makes it easy for me to sing the song because it means so much to what I've seen now. Choir member Theron Fowler was amazed that one song could be so powerful. This anthem, it brought us together for something bigger than ourselves. No matter what race, what culture, background, religious, whatever, it brought everyone together. And so a new generation takes up the anthem that inspired young people more than 50 years ago. But it's not a song that looks to the past. It's an anthem of hope for a future where change is always possible. Lynn Neary, NPR News, Washington. One of my favorite moments in the American Anthem series uh, is the song, Fight the Power. NPR producer Phil Harrell had the idea to ask Chuck D from Public Enemy 
and Ernie Isley from the Isley Brothers to come together and talk to each other about their respective songs, Fight the Power. And it just was a conversation we might not have had any other way. Ernie Isley's Fight the Power came out in post-Watergate America, when trust in government was low and the country was in recession. Everybody had a way of relating to the message. But nobody knew what was happening with the presidency. Nixon had been but just ousted. Yeah, he's out and Ford, Ford was, was shaky. Yeah. And nobody knew what 76 was, was going to come. Yeah. But for black folks in 1975, yes. it was a serious, yes. serious yes. time of doubt. Because when mm-hmm. white folks got it bad, mm-hmm. there's there's a basement underneath that that got, mm-hmm. got hell going on. But it's like, it was optimistic. You know, time is truly wasting. There's no guarantee. Smile is in the making. We got to fight the powers that be. It's like, ah. Oh. So you're optimistic. You're not going to run. It's a confrontation. Right. But you don't run. Kind of like being able to speak truth to power. And of course, when you do that, power doesn't like it. Yeah. (laughs) Because you're saying it to point out the shortcomings, the hypocrisy. spoke loud to me and I didn't even curse at the time. Yeah. But I was the first time I ever heard a curse on a record. Yeah. I started saying or reciting with all this nonsense going down. And Ronald took that into account. And when it came time to sing it, I heard him say, with all this BS going down. And I was sitting there like, well, he's probably gonna change that. Ronald, you're not gonna change that? Change what? (laughs) No, I'm not gonna change it. Was he hot that day or mad or something? No, 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 it was just like a matter of fact. And I said, you know, man, you know, some people may not like, he said, Ernie, if you can say what you feel and it's embraced, wonderful. If you can say what you feel and it's not embraced, at least you said what you feel. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. and Chuck D talking about their songs Fight the Power. God Bless the USA by country singer-songwriter Lee Greenwood has been a go-to song at conservative political rallies and conventions. So NPR's Don Gagne went to meet him. First of all, I wanted to put God first because I'm a conservative Christian, and I wanted to make sure that God was honored in the song. So the title had already framed, God Bless the USA, and I, I didn't know how I wanted to say it, but it was like, kind of thing. And I didn't know exactly what chords, but God bless the USA, or God bless the USA. 
have could have been a lot of ways to do that. Uh, simple was better. Greenwood says he was inspired by the military veterans he'd seen at his concert, so he got to thinking about writing an anthem. The Sousa marches were in the back of my head, and I did a lot of those as drum major from my high school band, and I wanted to have some pomp and circumstance. He says he is honored that some do consider his song an anthem. When you say the word anthem, it takes it to another category. After, what, 30-some years that I've sang this on stage, people do get up as if it is an anthem for their life, for their country. Pretty cool. Lee Greenwood on his song, God Bless the USA. Don Gagne, NPR News. This Bruce Springsteen hit from 1984 has a refrain that makes it feel like a celebration of America. NPR's Steve Inskeep reports the song emerged in the years after the Vietnam War. A veteran arrives home, tries to get his old job at the refinery back, but he's turned down. Rarely has a man with nowhere to go sounded so triumphant. Springsteen later told WHYY's Fresh Air he meant it that way. Born in the USA, the pride was in the chorus. In my songs, the spiritual part, the hope part, is in the choruses. The blues and your daily realities are in the details of the verses. And one Springsteen fan recalls the effect it had on crowds. In the 80s, Chris Christie, a future governor of New Jersey, bought a ticket to a concert at New Jersey's Giants Stadium. Bruce started every show with a really rousing, anthemic-type version of Born in the USA with the bandana on and the cut-off shirt and the fist pumping, and it felt like a celebration of being born in the USA. Uh, when really it's a defiant song about I was born in the USA and I deserve better than what I'm getting. Did some people not get what it was about at the beginning? Oh, I think plenty of people didn't get what it was about, including the President of the United States. America's future rests in a thousand dreams inside your hearts. President Ronald Reagan. It rests in the message of hope in songs of a man so many young Americans admire, New Jersey's own Bruce Springsteen. Now, Springsteen's politics leaned well left of Reagan's. And after Reagan praised him, the artist mused on stage that if people misunderstood his music, that was fine. It only made him more popular. My mother thanks you, my father thanks you, and my children thank you. Because I've learned that that's where the money is. And over the years, Springsteen himself has been willing to tweak the song's meaning. I was born in USA. Chris Christie heard him play an acoustic version in the 90s. Much different feeling, much different sound. I can remember at the show I went to see at the State Theater in New Brunswick, New Jersey, a couple of people started to try to sing with him, and he stopped in mid-song and said, I can handle this myself. At other times, Springsteen dropped the upbeat chorus, singing only the verses and forcing his audience to hear the dark story of the veteran. When the U.S. invasion of Iraq loomed in 2003, he told his audience the song was a prayer for peace. 
Maybe the meaning of Born in the USA is the distance between the grim verses and the joyous chorus. It's the space between frustrating American facts and fierce pride, the demand to push American reality a bit closer to our ideals. NPR's Stevens King. Our final anthem today is Aaron Copeland's Fanfare for the Common Man. It's an anthem without words, but the feeling behind it is unmistakable. And it's resonated with Americans since it was composed in 1942. NPR's Mandalit Del Barco has the story. Aaron Copeland began his fanfare with dramatic percussion. It heralds something big, exciting, heroic. Then simple trumpet notes ascend. It's a piece that feels like it was written by God and not by a human. Jazz trumpet player and composer Terence Blanchard. Whenever I hear it, it stops me in my tracks and it makes me reflect on the goodness of man. Really, and I know that sounds corny for some, but it really makes me think about at the end of the day, you know, most people in this country are good, God-fearing people. Honestly, that could have been our national anthem. (laughs) It has that type of spirit to it. By 1942, the U.S. had entered World War II, and composer Aaron Copeland was inspired by a speech Vice President Henry A. Wallace gave to rally Americans. Some have spoken of the American century. I say that the century on which we are entering, the century which will come into being after this war, can be and must be the century of the common man. And the common man deserved a fanfare, Copeland once said, remarking it was the common man, after all, who was doing all the dirty work in the war and the army. I'm David Hollis, and I live in Hubbardsville, New York, and I'm the editor of Trucker's News. NPR asked listeners to reflect on Aaron Copeland's fanfare. You know, my dad worked for the public utility in Michigan. My mom worked a number of part-time blue-collar jobs. And they deserve to be exalted by a piece of music like that. I'm Bill Fulmer. I live in DeWitt, Michigan. And I am retired from the State Department of Mental Health. And there are rich people and CEOs that are in the limelight. And they get a lot more attention. And it's easy to forget that it's the common man that is making everything work. Fanfare for the Common Man has been performed for presidents to honor victims of September 11th, and it's been played in space. Good morning, Endeavor, and a special good morning to you today, Eric. 
2008, NASA pilot Eric Bowe chose it as wake-up music for his crew of astronauts on the space shuttle Endeavour. What it made me think about is that, holy cow, I'm in space. Bo says he first heard the fanfare when he was studying at the Air Force Academy. He calls it magical, like his voyages above the globe. You're going around the planet once every 90 minutes and just looking at the Earth and how beautiful it is and the thin layer that we call the atmosphere that's protecting the planet and then hearing this great music that goes with what's going on down below. Composer Aaron Copland's fanfare for the common man has inspired other composers, and it has become a kind of national anthem for so-called common men and women. My name is Lynn Gilbert. My career was in IT for a utility company. And in spite of the current political landscape, I guess I still believe that there is an American dream of peace and prosperity for everyone. And music that soars and inspires like this piece does brings hope for the future. It's powerful, it's direct, and it's really just American. I love it. Thank you, Aaron Copeland. All of that in a piece that's under four minutes long. Mandalita al Barco, NPR News. It's been a fabulous journey through these American anthems. Thanks for coming along for the ride. Our show today was produced by Carrie Thompson, with special thanks to Taylor Burney, Daoud Tyler-Amin, and Vincent Acovino. Lauren Anki is the director of NPR Music. Ellen Silva is the executive producer of the series. I'm Elizabeth Blair. And I'm Tom Cole. Thanks for listening to American Anthem from NPR. NPR.